Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Bonus episode, the interview with Thomas Cathcart and Daniel Klein, authors of Plato and a Platypus Walk Into a Bar, Understanding Philosophy Through Jokes. Well, hello. It has taken me forever to edit this, and I have so many apologies to make. First of all, to Tom and Dan, who have been incredibly patient because I told them it was going to take me a week to flip the file. And instead, it took um, well over a month. And this, sadly, was not due to anything except my ebullience talking to Tom and Dan. I had the best time interviewing these guys. They are, they are just such a, a lot of fun to talk to. And as a consequence, I did not take the advice of Sage Turtle from Quirky Nomads and Brenda Dane from Cast On quite to heart as much as I should have, and wound up laughing while they were talking. And this would have been fine if the audio had worked. The last time I did an interview, everything worked out fine. I was able to get two completely separate audio tracks. This time I went in to do the same thing. I used the same instructions. I set the computer up the same way. And gremlins must have gotten inside it because when I went back to listen to the files, my audio and Dan and Tom's audio was combined. And as a consequence, it was very difficult for me to extract myself from them. And there will be moments where you can tell that that's what happened. I just couldn't remove myself from the conversation. So huge apologies for that, because literally it felt like 90% of this recording was me removing me laughing out loud, way too loud. But that was also one of the things that was so wonderful about this interview was I think I laughed the entire time. And, um, and that should give you an idea of what the book, Plato and a Platypus Walk Into a Bar, is like, and why you should perhaps consider running out as fast as you can and buying yourself a copy. Um, our conversation today ranges from faith and belief, through argument from analogy, to modern lit, and even a mention of the French Revolution. And since we are, in fact, reading uh, or listening to Charles Dickens's Tale of Two Cities right now, it seemed appropriate that that found a way to work itself in. I did go ahead and list this as explicit because there isn't any other option. It's either a clean file or an explicit file. And while nobody does any heavy swearing, a few of the jokes are kind of on the risque side. And so I decided rather than risking having um, parents just let their kids listen to this without noticing, um, you may want to preview it and see if they're if the jokes are the kinds of jokes that you might want to explain to your teenager or not. Although, honestly, for some of them, I'm sure the teenager could probably explain them to me better <laughs> than the other way around. Uh, to the best of my ability, I have included links on the show notes to the books that we talk about. And uh, in case there are some of the modern books that, that uh, Tom and Dan mentioned that you might want to check out. And um, aside from that, I think... We're ready for the interview. Without any further ado, I give you my mostly conversation and sometimes interview with Thomas Cathcart and Daniel Klein, 
authors of Plato and a Platypus Walk Into a Bar, Understanding Philosophy Through Jokes. I have to admit, I am still reading the book. I've just, I've just gotten past Bishop Barclay. I'm into, I'm well How into. How do I refute you, Bishop Barclay? Very good, very good. We like your pronunciation of his name. A lot of people mispronounce it. I, you know, I, I tried to study up a little bit because uh, philosophy is not, it's not, um, it wasn't my major. Well, now you, this, this book, is this the first book you guys have written together? No, actually it's the second book we wrote together. The first one did not do well, Heather. Oh. A book called Macho Meditation in uh, <laughs> 1997. <laughs> it was a spoof of meditation books. And uh, it didn't sell a lot of copies. Well, I'm going to have to go back and find a copy now. It sounds like a hoot. There, there was a secondhand one I found on Amazon the other day. They, they were selling for a penny. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> no. Plus $4 shipping and handling. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they get you. <laughs> well, I hope the success of this book makes you feel better about that one. Yes. Makes me feel better about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, you two are quite the handsome gentleman on the back cover of your book, the picture that they put on the... Thank the... you. It's all done with shadows. But... <laughs> yeah. Saying it was taken by an old friend of mine who's a photographer. He, he thought of the whole idea of putting his, the books between us and everything. I thought it was very clever of him. Well, and it's it's just really nice to see kind of, you know, the joke of the, the talking heads on the shelf. Yes. It was right. very good. And it, I was very heartened to notice that the, the Aristotle book that I, I gather is, is next to Daniel's head, I think. Let's see. Aristotle is next to uh, Dan's head, yes. That is a book I actually own. Oh, how about that? Isn't that cool? Got the book end that goes with it? No. <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> it's a set. <laughs> if only. <laughs> then I'd really have a claim to fame. <laughs> well, now, I, ha I, did, I did come up with a few questions that I, I thought would be interesting to, to my podcast listeners. And I gather, Tom, you, you actually checked out the podcast site. I did, yeah. Yeah, we both subscribe to something called Google Alert. Do you know Google Alert? Yes. Yeah, and uh, your your podcast popped up, your website popped up with a podcast on it, and uh, I checked it out. I listened to about five minutes about knitting, and I thought, gee, I wonder if she's ever going to say anything about the book, and then all of a sudden you did. <laughs> I was well, very pleased. Well, now, I have uh, one of my questions to you was, since my uh, my podcast listeners are artists or at least craftspeople, um, is there a philosophy about what constitutes art? Yes. Oh, yeah, it's, actually there is. It's, it's in the section of um, oh, I'm looking. aesthetics, which goes along with, usually, ethics. Because uh -huh. they are both concerned with evaluation. How do you value things? Yeah. And, of course, there are, you know, there are many philosophers who have written about that. The, a modern American one would be John Dewey who wrote at length about, uh, uh, you know, what constitute art and the experience of viewing art. How does art work? Yes. I think his theory had uh, thought that the viewer somehow uh, recreated the, in his mind or in his, his sensibilities uh, the, the making of the art when he viewed it in some way. Yeah, somebody thought that. I don't know if that was Dewey or not, but somebody thought that. Yeah. yeah. So that the, the I don't think our book addresses it, though, does it? No. Oh, well, then good. 
Yeah, we had one aesthetics joke in the book at one point in an earlier draft, and it was a terrible joke. <laughs> is that is that the one that I made up, uh, Tom? Yeah, you did make up one, actually, and it was even worse than the one I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, we had one about Bush. I've forgotten what it was now, but it was terrible. But, uh, you know, even the ancient Greeks wrote, wrote about, you know, what constitutes a tragedy and what constitutes a uh, comedy, and those eventually came under the rubric of aesthetics, under evaluation. Did anybody ever go back and really kind of revise Aristotle's whole construct? Aristotle's yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know that. Yeah. No, there's lots we don't know, as you'll discover. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're funny about it, then it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it covers a multitude of sins, man, I'll tell you. <laughs> to a point. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you, have you guys, aside from, from writing books, have you ever created what, something that you would consider to be art with your hands? We made a seven-minute movie together when we were very, very young. We were living in Woodstock, New York. And we set out to do a documentary, actually based on the Old Testament prophets, with kind of a groovy, jazzy soundtrack and uh, kind of contemporary uh, images. I remember the 1964 World's Fair was one of them. Um, and uh, nobody else could make head or tail of it, and nobody uh, had any idea how you would market a seven-minute movie. And uh, <laughs> so that was about as close as... <laughs> Yeah. All, oh, you've written a musical. Dan's written a musical. All, all of that qualify as art. If nobody understands it, I think that <laughs> I think that it's the not post ultra. Now, I've written a lot of novels, but I don't consider them literature, which would, I guess, be the word. Although the word. your most recent one, I would say, was literature. Yes, that's one that's coming out in uh, 2009. That's that's my at the age, I'll be what 70 then, or 68 or 69. Hey, congratulations. Well, now that's that, but that raises a really interesting point. When I was teaching high school, my, I used to qualify books for my kids that <clears throat> my job as a teacher was to make sure that they learned literature, something that they probably couldn't read on their own without help. I didn't care what they read on their own, be it, you know, garbage or, or really good stuff or literature, but that in class we were going to be working on the hard stuff. And they seemed to take that definition pretty easily. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree entirely with it, because I think there's some great literature that's not hard. Ah. I mean, I, 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 I don't think that uh, War and Peace, for example, is a hard read at all. It's a long read. Just a long one. <laughs> it's a long read, but at least in the translation I read, I didn't find it difficult. I didn't find the language difficult. I didn't find the themes difficult. But I did consider it literature. I did consider the themes accessible as they were. I did consider them, uh, you know, mind-altering the way good literature should be. But it, a lot, it gave me a new perspective on things. Oh, that's interesting. But I don't think... For me, a definition of literature doesn't necessarily entail that it, you know, it needs deep study and that you have to uh, uh, do close analysis of it. Right. But that's just me. I consider some, even writers of mysteries, uh, uh, you know, so highly literate and and the characters so complex that I think, at least in, in my lexicon, they're they're uh, they qualify as literature. You're thinking like Elmore Leonard. I yes, I think Elmore Leonard. He has an uh, original voice. Sometimes Lawrence Block. Yeah, exploded into a novel, and just reading a comparison of two descriptive paragraphs, it was the same description, but 
the one from the short story was smaller and and briefer, and the one from the the novel was exquisite. Huh. Yeah. yeah, no, no, uh, Chandler is a great writer. I yeah, thought, you know, and just because he is a quote genre writer, I don't think he should be excluded from the ranks of uh, you know good, very good American writers. Uh, well, and I think you know examining examining his syntax and the way that he created his plot and structure and and everything, it's it's certainly worth studying. Yeah, and yeah. it's. And it's not necessarily, I taught high school in New York City, so it wasn't necessarily something that my kids would have been able to pick up on their own and get all the the layers to, if, if for no other reason than that the context was completely foreign to them. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. They did, just, did you teach public high school? I did. Yeah, yeah good wow. for you. Well, it's one of the last honorable professions. <laughs> one of the last honorable, I consider it a very honorable profession. You substitute taught? Well, I tried substituting at Sandwich High School, which is you know sort of a suburban type high school. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I lasted four days. <laughs> <laughs> my nerves couldn't take it. <laughs> my hat goes off to you. You know, I would venture, and I'm going out on a limb here, that um, that some of the so-called crafts, you know, let's say embroidery, and uh, at a certain level, I want to qualify as art. I think there is uh, having now that I've actually started looking into, especially some of the the folk crafts and and things that have been passed down uh, from parent to child. There's yeah. some stuff that's done out there that is so unbelievably intricate and difficult that the archaeologists who were not schooled in this stuff were going into you know Egyptian tombs and stuff and absolutely misidentifying what they were seeing because they simply couldn't believe that the structure really? could have been made the way yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, I can believe that. Yeah, it's been fascinating to to read about this. I mean, stuff. I remember at various points in my life stopping in museums at uh, medieval tapestry mm-hmm. and feeling wow, you know. Uh, whatever whatever you want to call it, what it does for me is similar to what looking at a, some paintings does do yeah. for me, does for me. Yeah. No, I I feel the same way. And there especially I, I got an opportunity to see some people last year at a conference who were doing um a, like a silk pile rug where they had a, a weaving loom set up, but instead of weaving fiber they were actually tying little knots of silk thread and then snipping them off so that you had a a rug pile out of it and out of a week they had oh it was probably six inches long six, six inches wide and they might have had three and a half inches of oh, tapestry boy. done this is labor intensive yeah I, and it's interesting because i mean we're certainly we're certainly part of the the new leisure class in a certain way all of the people who are listening who've contacted me they all have day jobs but at the same time, they're doing this very labor-intensive craft work at home on their own time. And it's, I guess there's something about, now that we're in such a technologically um, consumed world, there seems to be a really kind of primal need to create something that you're going to leave behind or pass on or, or give away. I must say that for myself, I've spent most of my adult life writing, so I'm sitting behind it keyboard of one kind or another and uh, thinking of words and imagining situations and I by the time I come home I long to slice some vegetables mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean for me cooking you know where I actually 
have a real object in my hand, not an abstraction like a word, and and uh, do something with it. And then I have immediate feedback from my family of whether or not I cooked something well. Uh, I'm very, very, you know, in some ways uh, more gratifying than, than many days of writing. Well, and that's, I mean, that's an art in itself, to be able to oh. to cook well. I mean, it's one thing to make oatmeal. It's another thing entirely to... Yes. Put together a good Can dinner. we tell you the one the one art joke from the book? I think you should. All right. A painter walks into the gallery where his stuff is being shown, and he says to the gallery owner, he says, how's my, how's my stuff doing? The gallery owner says, well, I have some good news and some bad news. The guy says, oh, well, give me the, the good news first. He says, okay. So the man walked in this morning and asked me if I thought you were the kind of painter whose work would be more valuable after your death. And I told him I thought you were. So he bought everything in the store. The guy says, well, that's fantastic. What's the bad news? The gallery owner says, he was your doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was going to take a hit out on the guy's life, which just shows that I lived in Brooklyn for too long. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you lived in New York too long. <laughs> that's not a bad variation on the joke, though. <laughs> It was Tony Soprano. <laughs> <laughs> well, since since most of my listeners are philosophical lay people, is there ha- having completed this book and certainly having completed a lifetime or not completed but lived a lifetime within the world of philosophy? Yeah, don't say it's completed. <laughs> you guys aren't the guy <laughs> in the art joke. Be far off. <laughs> my first bestseller. I feel like I've just begun. <laughs> <laughs> Is is there one particular tenant of philosophy or one kind of philosophical construct that you think would be useful for people to have an understanding of in this rather complicated and conflicted world that we're currently living in? Well, first, I'd like to quote Groucho Marx. Yay! Uh, one of my favorite philosophers, who after laying out his philosophy, said, these are my principles. If you don't like them... I have others. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Groucho ever said anything that I didn't love. Yes, yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, outside of a dog, a book is a man's best friend. Inside a dog, it's too dark to read. <laughs> <laughs> I need a t-shirt that says that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, how, you, you start with this one, Tommy. How, how would you sum up uh, your, your philosophy? Never polish spectacles with black wax. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Now, how does that fit into part, philosophy? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, part, part of the very nature of philosophy is that once you ask a question, it, uh, it, it begats all kinds of other questions, and then you get lost in those. And Tom and I have studied this, you know, formally studied philosophy uh, about 50 years ago have been doing these questions about questions ever since. The one that interests us, I must say, the most has to do with um, theism and the the role of religion in life. And uh, we've been talking about that subject probably for a good part of these 50 years we've known one another. That's good stuff to talk about. I'm sure there's... It is. It is. I wish we'd get somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of Just people so who feel... Just so headed I can't make any headway. <laughs> Tom is a divinity school dropout. Well, so you haven't made any headway with this question. 
Well, we're getting there. We're we're interested in it. All we're, these, we're chipping away at yeah, it. All, all these <laughs> all these new books about uh, about the so-called new atheism, the Sam Harris End of Faith book, uh, the Christopher Hitchens book, which I haven't read yet. Well, yeah. He's been vying with us uh, on the list. So yes. We don't like him. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, well, all, you know, they've got us thinking again. And in fact, we are talking about the. Uh, of doing another book, possibly in dialogical form, uh, about uh, about uh, the philosophy of religion and theology. We studied, we had the good fortune to study as undergraduates under Paul Tillich, the theologian. Ooh. And I think he's still an influence on your thinking, Tom, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure is. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting question because I hear... I. I've always thought of, and, and this is probably just because I'm ignorant, I've always thought of the word belief as kind of a, a part of the whole faith idea. And yet yeah, I hear people so. saying things like, um, Jews don't believe in Jesus. And mm-hmm. th- I find that to be a very strange thing because being Jewish and knowing a lot of Jews, people that I know believe Jesus lived which would imply a belief that <laughs> I know, I know. in There's existence. There's so much muddy language in this field. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. They need somebody to straighten it out. Maybe it's Danny and me. See, that's I can some shed some light on it, though. Good. Jews don't recognize Jesus. Episcopalians don't recognize the Pope. And Baptists don't recognize each other in a liquor store. <laughs> How true. Can I tell you my favorite... <laughs> My favorite uh, faith versus reason joke. I would love it. And uh, there's this old guy. He's walking in the woods, and all of a sudden, he stumbles and falls down a well. And he's falling and falling and falling, and finally he reaches out and he grabs onto the spindly root, and he's just hanging there for dear life. And he looks up, and he just sees this circle of light, you know, yards and yards, hundreds of yards above him, and he says, is there anybody up there? And uh, no answer. He says, is there anybody up there? All of a sudden, there's a thunderclap, and a beam of light shines down the hole on him, and a big voice says, I am the Lord your God. Have faith in me, and I will save you. Let go of the root. The guy looks up and says, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> that's, that's one of our favorites for summing up the conflict between faith and reason. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorites in the book, in fact. No, that's that. I actually got to that that one last night too, and I thought it was it was lovely. And it's I think it's the corollary to one of my favorites, which I don't know if it's if it's in the book, but it's the the guy in the flood who has friends come by in their pickup and say, hey, the water's rising. Oh, right, yeah. I yeah. love that joke. It's a great joke. And there tell are it. people... Why don't you tell it? <laughs> really? I want to hear you tell it. <laughs> so the guy comes by in the pickup and says, all right, George, get in the truck. The water's rising. And George says, no, God's going to save me. And the waters rise. And pretty soon, George is on the second floor of his house and a boat comes by. And the guy in the boat says, you better get in the boat because the water's rising higher. And George says, nope. God's going to save me. And pretty soon, George is sitting on the top of his chimney, 
watching the floodwaters start to lick his feet and a helicopter comes by and a guy on one of the drop down ladders says get on the ladder we got to take you out of here the waters are going to keep going up and george says nope god's going to save me so george winds up at the pearly gates and saint peter says um welcome to heaven and george says i have a bone to pick with uh, <laughs> with your boss <laughs> so saint peter goes and talks to to god and god accepts an audience with George and George walks in and says, I lived my life faithfully and believed in you. And what did you do? And God said, I sent a truck, a boat and a helicopter. <laughs> I love it. It's a good oh, joke. Well, good. <laughs> Your theater training shines through, Heather. That's right. Hey, can I, may I tell another one? Please. Okay, this is about a guy named Thompson, and, and he got to be 70 years old, which I can see from where I'm sitting, and, <laughs> and, and he decides that he's going to spruce up his, his life, particularly his physique. So he goes on a diet, he takes up exercise, he gets a personal trainer, he loses 40 pounds, he loses 7 inches on his waist, and puts on 5 inches on his chest. He's really looking trim and good, and he decides to top it all off with a haircut. And he gets a sporty haircut in the barber shop, and he steps outside, and he's run over by a truck. And he sees lies dying in the gutter. He says, Lord, how could you have done this to me? And the Lord answers, to tell you the truth, Thompson, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that, that one in the book we used to, I think it could illustrate a lot of philosophical ideas, but the idea that we chose to uh, use it to illustrate was the difference between what are essential qualities of a person and what are what Aristotle called accidental uh, qualities or characteristics. I like that. That's interesting. That brings up a whole a whole mess load of stuff to think about. Yes, that, we, yeah, and it, it's it's fun because it has levels, and one level is that you'd think that God, who's omniscient, would be able to recognize what is essentially Thompson, no matter what he has done to us. <laughs> one would like to hope. <laughs> one would hope. One would hope. One he, he is busy. He is busy. <laughs> you know, the, the, the distinction you were making a minute ago between faith, like faith as trust, mm -hmm. versus belief, you know, believing in Jesus, whatever that may mean, uh, there's actually a story that, that sort of illustrates that, too. During the, the 18th century, a lot of philosophers were deists. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He right. believed in sort of a remote god who, who was like a clockmaker. You know, he created the universe and he wound it up and then he let it go and it just sort of went on its own. And uh, the, uh, as opposed to like the historical religions, Judaism and Christianity, you know, where where uh, there's a personal and a historical relationship with the Creator. And, and he's hands-on. Hands-on. He's yeah. the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's He's the God who leads his people out of the wilderness, etc., etc. So there's a Jewish grandmother who's down by the seashore with her, with her grandchild, and all of a sudden a big wave comes washing in and carries the child out to sea. And the grandmother is beside herself, and she shrieks to God, Oh, God, take pity on me. Please return my grandson. And sure enough, the next wave brings the grandson back up, drops him on the beach. She takes one look at him and she says, he had a hat. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't understand that joke until I moved to Brooklyn. <laughs> and suddenly 
everything so much more made sense to me <laughs> being localized in Brooklyn than yeah. it had before. Where were you from before that? I'm actually a fifth generation Californian. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm interested that you brought up Jefferson because uh, one of the classes that I taught for most of my 10 years in a high school classroom was American literature. And especially teaching in the inner city, um, reading Jefferson brings up some really interesting problems because there's kind of young idealistic Jefferson and then there's why did I ever allow newspapers Jefferson? And, and and looking at kind of the the milieu that he was in with with Franklin and Adams and Madison all in the the early days and looking at the effects of the enlightenment on what happened in our country and how successful we've been with our little democratic experiment here and then looking at the things that are happening nowadays yes can can you see because you have you have a, a much broader philosophical perspective on all of this what what factors, what elements are necessary to bring about a new age of enlightenment? This is where all of my friends keep saying, God, we just need to, you know, get back to the age of reason. We need to do something. Yeah. Well, some of the, I, stop me if I'm wrong, Tom, this is the dialect of our relationship. I offer ideas and then Tom tells me I'm wrong. <laughs> some of the German idealists uh, who had a grand view, people like Hegel, who had a grand view of of the earth and of history, thought that uh, that uh, the spirit unfolded in a dialectic of you know first a thesis of 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 uh, culture and ideas, and then that was countered by an antithesis, and then somehow the two evolved into a synthesis, which then became the new thesis, and on and on it went. And if you take the grand view, we aren't talking about the, uh, you know, the 2008 election, which, or we may be, but we probably not, that uh, that uh, it will evolve to a better place by uh, by the unfolding of the spirit in history, whatever that may mean to a German idealist. That sounds dangerous to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? Especially the German yeah. part. That, that's yeah. right. Yeah. As, as a German, I'm thinking, wow, I don't know that I want to stick around for that. Yeah. yeah. Did I get that right, Tom, by the way? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about the better place, different place, and I think that's where... Oh, he didn't, he didn't evaluate it. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think maybe he did, actually. He thought we were sort of progressing, but yeah, but uh, that's the part that's a little scary, I think. Yeah, yeah well, and, and certainly one, one person's vision of progress is... You know, yes, a, a, yeah. a nicely paved road to hell to another person. So, absolutely, yeah, and, and that's what you know. The, this country is really divided right now. Yes. And, uh, has there been another time in history that you can think of where where this kind of polarization has happened within a a giant community or you know country? Yeah, French Revolution, huh? Yeah, oh, that's, that's a good one. one. Yeah. We're doing Dickens right now, so that's kind of perfect. Well, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Yeah, on the one hand, uh, extreme rationality and, uh, you know, very uh, abstract and conceptual thought. And on the other hand, insanity and craziness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, and did art. And art. It's true. They go together. <laughs> now, did, I don't know enough about the French Revolution to know, but was it, did it wind up during the whole reign of terror to be kind of like the the Cultural Revolution in China, where they once they'd killed off all the nobility and the rich people, did they start going after scholars and and uh, people who had just 
you know, through education made a place for themselves in the world? Or did they pretty much stick with the yeah. aristocrats? Truth, I don't know enough about the French Revolution either. Do you, Danny? Nope. Yeah. yeah. I know that I that I, I drove around France during it and went straight to Liechtenstein. <laughs> <laughs> You're a little older than Heather and I. Very neat. It's good to know that you have access to all times and places. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One time I, I, I wrote a series of quasi-historical novels about Elvis Presley. Oh, uh, cool. In which, he, in which he solved crimes in the 60s. And I was interviewed by a reporter from The Globe, and he said, did you have to do a lot of historical research for these? And I said, no, I'm so old I can do... A historical fiction from memory. <laughs> <laughs> okay, did he buy it? <laughs> he put it in his article. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's no guarantee he bought it. He just saw some good copy there. <laughs> well, I I haven't, like I said, I haven't completely finished the book yet, but I, I wanted to find out if you have any jokes on intelligent design. This is something, my dad's a, a scientist, and I, it is a, something that sticks in my craw, that people don't know what the yeah. word theory really means. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We do talk about intelligent design a couple places, actually, in the book. Oh, good. Oh, oh, one of them, I think, is early on in the book, a part that you, you have read. Uh, in the introduction, we, uh, we talk about uh, how arguments from analogy, which is what the argument for intelligent design, if it, insofar yeah. as it is an argument, it's, a, it's an argument from analogy. It's not a very good analogy, but it's not... Well, tell us what the analogy is. Uh, the analogy is uh, is comparing the universe to, you know, a uh, or things in the universe, like the eyeball, or, you know, complex things in the universe, to uh, man-made things, you know? So it's uh, saying that, uh, you know, because uh, the eyeball in some respects... Uh, you know, resembles an intricate uh, computer or something, that therefore it must have had a maker just like the computer had uh, Bill Gates. You know? yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so most arguments from analogy are pretty weak. And, uh, but then we offer, you know, there's, al- there's always one, uh, one uh, contrary example that proves the rule. And uh, we offer the story of, uh, of the uh, man who goes, 90-year-old man who goes to see his doctor and he says, um, you know, he said, I, I've uh, just impregnated my 24-year-old wife. And the doctor says, well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> he says, uh, a man uh, went hunting, but instead of a gun, by mistake, he picked up an umbrella. So he gets out in the woods, and a bear charges at him. So the man picks up the umbrella and shoots the bear dead. The man says, well... No, that, that's impossible. Somebody else must have shot the bear. The doctor says, my point exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so mean. <laughs> painful, that's painful. <laughs> yeah. Well, but in, in terms of intelligent design, uh, you know, there were philosophers a couple of centuries or several centuries ago who were already arguing against it and saying that what fails about that particular analogy, in this case, the, 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 the intelligent design folks were saying uh, that the Earth was analogous to a clock, and because there is a clockmaker, mm. there must be a, uni- a, a universe clockmaker, and he is God. And uh, I think David Hume, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, said that, well, 
there's a place where you can't have analogies, and one is the whole thing, the universe. There is nothing analogous to the whole thing because it's the whole thing. Right. That seems so obvious once you say it. Yes, it is. And he said it in the, uh, what, the 17th, 18th, 18th century. Yeah, the, he was a British empiricist. And this so goes... a lot of these things that, that you would think would have laid to rest years ago are now raising their head again. Yeah. Well, this goes right back to what you were saying about how badly taught history is these days. Yes. And you know what? I mean, not, not to, to hammer away at it too much, but um, I, th I don't think it would hurt if, uh, if philosophy were taught in the, in the social studies curriculum to high schoolers. And, um, I, mean, I think one thing that we've accomplished in our book is that we've shown that a lot of difficult philosophical ideas can be made accessible to young minds. Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's helpful, you know, when they are confronted with something like intelligent design to be able to pull out David Hume and uh, and maybe pull out the joke that Tom just told and, uh, and, uh, and be able to talk about the limitations of the argument from analogy. Absolutely. I, one of the most useful classes I took at UCLA, because I... I would have gone into science, but I'm lousy at math, so I, and I never considered philosophy to be an option, but I took a logic class. And oh, great. it it was, I mean, it's like being a, a, you know, a convert that you just kind of, everything starts to make so much more sense to you. And actually, in, it built on, in eighth grade, I had a completely crazy hippie teacher who taught uh, an entire marking period, an entire quarter on logical fallacies. Oh, fabulous. It I was spectacular. It. Yeah, yeah. And made all the difference. We have a sequel to our book, coming out. Uh, what's the latest title, Tom? They keep changing the they title. They keep changing the title, but uh, I think the latest is Arist Aristotle and an Ardwark go to Washington. <laughs> and and uh, what it is, is we take all of the, or not all, but a great many of the logical fallacies, both the formal ones and deductive logic and some of the looser ones called informal fallacies, and show how a lot of what politicians say is utter claptrap. I'm so glad you're going to do that. Yes, we, we've been working on it. We're nearing the end of it, actually, so, yeah. that, so that it can be available before uh, the, the next election. Thank you God. You probably can't guess who, who is the source of many of the quotations. I have no idea. <laughs> One of your favorite logicians. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This is, it's so, it's so important. In fact, I just... A few, I don't know, maybe a month ago, I wrote on my blog, I had heard an NPR reporter use begging the question incorrectly. And I had a conniption fit because I, I respect NPR quite a lot. And this wasn't, it wasn't Nina Totenberg. It wasn't, you know, any one of their, their mainstays. But it was, it was disconcerting because I, at, at the point I made on my blog was that I'm having taught in New York City, I have a lot of respect for the way my kids would invent language, that it's it's very creative and it shows a really sharp wit and a sharp mind. And yeah. that's not what my problem was. My problem was taking a philosophical construct that matters, that actually defines a, a, a framework for thought and applying it incorrectly so that it loses its value, it loses its meaning. And yeah. it, it makes well. it impossible to talk about what was really going on with begging the question. Absolutely. And, and uh, actually, we had a lot of fun going through it. And it's astounding how, how, how much they get away with. It is just utter nonsense. Yeah.
Yeah, and circular reasoning. I was able to teach some stuff to my high school students, but they did eventually get circular reading and reasoning and straw man and bandwagon. You know, some of the the easy Very ones. Good. But yeah. um, but one of our favorites uh, is uh, that the uh, informal fallacy, uh, and we talk about this in Plato and the Platypus, and that is. Uh, the one that called in Latin post hoc ergo propter hoc. I read that last and, night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, so, and some of those uh, the jokes that reveal that one, like, um, well, here, you, you, what's your favorite, Tom? Post hoc ergo propter hoc? Yeah. I keep thinking of the dirty one, and I don't want to say it. Oh, you okay. can do yeah, it. Let's... Okay. Oh. I can put an explicit label on this. Oh, okay. Go for it, Danny. It's your favorite joke. Okay. <laughs> So it's the same old guy who's married to a young woman. <laughs> I don't know why we 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 gloom to those jokes, but so no matter how hard he tries in bed, she just isn't satisfied. And so he goes to his rabbi and he says, "What should I do about this?" And the rabbi says, "Yes, I've run into this problem before." He says, "There's a, a simple solution to it. What you do is you get somebody, usually a younger man, to stand next to the bed while you're making love to your wife, and have him wave a towel over you." And that should do the trick. So he hires a younger man. The younger man waves the towel. He goes at it with his wife, and she is totally unmoved by the <laughs> exercise. And uh, so he goes back to the rabbi, and he says, it didn't work. And the rabbi says, yeah, sometimes we have to make a slight adjustment. And what we do is we put the younger man in bed with your wife, and you wave the towel. So he puts the younger man in bed with his wife, and he waves the towel, and she's ex with pleasure and at the height of her ecstasy the old guy waving the towel looks down and says schmuck that's the way you wave a towel <laughs> that's the post hoc proctor uh, ergo proctor hoc mistake mistaking one thing that precedes another as the cause of another I think that is such a beautiful example <laughs> <laughs> It is. You might you might drop a few stitches while telling. <laughs> I hope everybody's dropping a few stitches listening to this. The jokes are great. Yeah, there's a similar similar story about uh, an elderly woman in a nursing home, and uh, an old man walks up to her and he said, uh, "Guess how old I am?" And she said, "Oh, okay." She said, um, "Put your hand up under my dress." So he says, oh, "Okay." So he does, and she goes, "Oh, yes." Um, hmm. Yes, oh, very, yes. I, mm, uh, you're 84. And he <laughs> says, uh, how did you know? And she said, you told me yesterday. <laughs> that one hurts. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, one of, the, one of the other things that I'd written down was um, on the, uh, the idea of, of reasoning and, and fallacious reasoning was yes. that Sherlock Holmes never deduced anything. Right. Yes, he used the induction. See, oh, tell no. that story, Tom. That's a great story. And, and you guys are going to have to explain the difference between inductive and deductive reasoning. Okay, yeah. Deductive reasoning is, is like the syllogism that you learned in school. You know, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. It's just a, a logical spinning out of the consequence of two premises. Inductive reasoning, oh, and deductive reasoning sort of goes from the general to the particular. All men are mortal, and we go from all men to Socrates, from the general to the particular. 
Inductive reasoning goes the other way around. Inductive reasoning is the reasoning that scientists use. You know, you look at a number of examples, and then you draw generalizations from them. And then you draw them based on prior experience and probabilities and all kinds of things. You know, you look at a number of uh, instances, and then you say, oh, okay, what I see in common is this general theory. So Holmes and Watson are out on a camping trip. And in the middle of the night, Holmes wakes Watson up and he says, Watson, he says, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson says, yes, I see the stars. And uh, Holmes says, well, well, what, what do you make of that? And he says, uh, well, uh, horologically, I'd say it's about a quarter of three. Meteorologically, I'd say that uh, tomorrow will be a very nice day. Uh, theologically, I'd say that the universe is a magnificent creation and I am uh, but a small and puny creature. Uh, what does it mean to you, Holmes? Holmes says, Watson, you idiot, someone's stolen our tent. <laughs> That's induction. <laughs> <laughs> so are you guys planning on teaching a course using your books? No, no, we're, we're providing the text for other teachers. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope they buy it. Well, I actually, I, I emailed the Amazon link to a friend of mine who is a philosophy professor at Hofstra. Oh, oh great. I think he's cool. probably bought books for everybody. <laughs> no, no we've, I, I heard of uh, a professor at Pratt who is using it in his classroom. Good. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's just out. So that is our hope that, you know, it can't be the primary or the, let's say the sole text in the course. Yeah. But it, it, it certainly could be a, a supplementary one that, that shows that, you know, philosophy can be fun. Well, and, and ex you know, easily accessible and that it does, it does have that funny habit of making you see connections and think about stuff that perhaps you hadn't thought about before. Exactly, and that's and that's the commonality between jokes and philosophy. You know, yeah. they both do that. Uh, jo jokes do the same thing. They they get you to see things from a different perspective. Well, now, do you have any sense, having having read all of this stuff about, say, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, were they funny guys? I don't know. I I, I tried to catch Socrates was playing a club in Athens. <laughs> <like, but, laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a stand-up routine, but you know, he, he, he mostly attracted the gay crowd. I was going to say, it wasn't called Plato's Retreat, was it? <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that reading those guys in college that I ever got too many chuckles. I don't know, some of the, the uh, Socratic dialogues, I guess, no, I guess I wouldn't laugh. but I, I, Entertaining. Yeah, I'd find uh, them entertaining. entertaining. Not yeah. funny. Not ha-ha funny, but ha-ha-ah. Uh. Yeah, yeah, like, oh, how clever of him to, to come with that comeback, you know? Well, I like the dialogues that you guys have at the beginning of each of the chapters. Yeah, those were fun to write. The little Uzo, Uzo laden. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good stuff. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'm I have I am just so much enjoying it. And actually, part of the reason why I haven't been able to finish it is because people keep stealing it from me. Uh -huh. so Tell I'm, them to get their own copy. This is what I've been saying. Get your own damn book. <laughs> most of them have listened. But I, uh, before, I, before I take up any more of your time, I do need to end on one question for each of you. Since we're doing all classic literature on the podcast, who are your favorite classical authors and maybe a classical book? And who are your favorite modern authors with the possible exception of yourselves? Mm -hmm. Aha. Well, I can go first. Uh, my favorite pre-current, uh, pre pre-contemporary uh, author 
is Dostoevsky, wow. who's also very philosophically minded. Very much so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, I, I'm going to chime in. I like the Russians a lot. I, I, you know, I like uh, Chekhov. I like Tolstoy very much. Dostoevsky, those, you know, it's been a long, I have to admit, it's been a long time since, since I read them. But um, those really got to me. More so than I think what uh, uh, British literature that I read. Interesting. I found Chekhov to be very, very inaccessible until I saw Wally Shawn's um, uh, Vanya on 42nd Street. Yeah, yes. And then suddenly I went, oh, yeah, Americans don't really get this thing very well. Yeah, I happen to like a lot of uh, contemporary writers, um, uh, American writers. I think there's some real gems out there, like Richard Russo. Mm-hmm. I think he's terrific. Um, yeah. There's one of his novels that didn't get as much attention by far as Empire Falls, uh, called Straight Man. Isn't it brilliant? Isn't that good? Yes. It's one of the yeah. best modern comic novels I've read. And really captures the uh, spirit of a, of, a small t- of a small campus. Yes, yes. academic life. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I've read a, a bunch of books about... Uh, there was one that was sort of like Blue Angel. Uh, I didn't think it was any... Uh, what was it called? It was called something like Blue Angel. But, that was a Russo uh, book? I'm, I'm looking on... Uh, that was a Russo book? I'm looking on my shelf. No, no, no. This was. I'm, I'm talking about other books about uh, life on small. Oh, there was. Oh, yeah, was actually, it? it was called Blue Angel, wasn't it? Wasn't that uh, Francine Prose? That's right. Which yeah. was also a very funny book. It's and a funny it... book, but I don't. I don't think it holds a candle to uh, Straight Man. Oh, I don't know. I yeah. liked it a lot. Yeah. I thought Straight Man did a really nice job with the politics. You know, just oh, yeah. really oh, clarifying fabulous. the absurdity of all that. Yes. And it also had some great kind of uh, almost uh, you know, slapstick comedy. You know, yes, it did. around in the attic. I just love that. Yeah. He's such a, he is a lovely writer. He makes it look easy. Yes, he does. And there's another one who makes it look easy who I like very much uh, called Scott Spencer, who's mainly, mainly known for Endless Love, but he's written some fine novels since then. Ooh. Endless Love, I thought, was a fabulous novel. He also wrote one of the great comic novels called Men in Black. Oh, I love it's, that. It's not the same story as the Men in Black movie. It's a totally different different uh, story. But uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful yeah. comic novel. Oh, yeah, this it's is It's a good. laugh out loud novel. Yes. You know, it's one of those novels where you're sitting alone in a room reading it and you feel like an idiot because you're collapsing with laughter. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it had special resonance for me because the main character is a ghostwriter. And over the years, oh. I've had to supplement my income in ghostwriting for various uh, people, some of them quacks, and I don't mean <laughs> ducks. And, uh, and uh, the premise of that book, the Scott Spencer book, is that uh, he, he writes a, uh, he ghostwrites a book, uh, and then he, or he doesn't ghostwrite, he writes it under a, a pseudonym, and then he has to become his own pseudonym. Oh my gosh! Publicize the book, so he makes television appearances where he has to invent this personality <laughs> to, yes. to fit his pseudonym. Yes. It has love it's very, and it's very, very funny. And it's very funny. That's it. now. Have you read Jasper Ford? Have you read any of his The Era Fair? No, I don't oh. even know him. I don't <gasps> know him. Oh, the name again, please. It's he's Welsh. It's Jasper, it, just like the the gemstone, and then Ford is F F O R D E. 
Very, Can I throw very out funny. one last name? Of uh, course. Somebody who I like very much, although not uh, some of it, his writing I, I haven't been able to get through, but Russell Banks. Oh. And uh, he, I, I have found uh, in, in talking about him with friends that men seem to like him more than women. So uh, with that qualifier out there, uh, particularly a book called uh, Continental Drift. Continental Drift. Oh, I've heard of that one I've heard of. I don't remember his name, but I remember people talking about Russ, the book. Yeah, Russell Banks. He's, yep. he's uh, very accessible. Yeah. Uh, if you only read one of his books, read Continental Drift. Yeah, and, and, right. but uh, with the qualifier that some women find it, uh, because the main character is, is not kind to women. Yeah, but I, I remember people saying that about um, about Wolf's, um, oh my God, what was the opus in the in the 80s? The Oh, Bonfire of the Vanities. Bonfire of the Vanities. I remember people saying, oh, but it's you, you're not going to like it. It's not a chick book. And I thought it was heartbreaking. It was yeah. so well done. So, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested well, now. Those, okay, that's our lit. Did we pass the lit test? <laughs> you did. <laughs> yes, you read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that goes a long ways these days. That's I right. also watch TV and love American Idol, so there. <laughs> that's so nice. We just watched it for the first time this last go-round, and Jordan is from Arizona, so we were all very excited. Oh, yeah. Really, I, I've never seen it, and it's not a snob thing, because I love Dancing with the Stars. I do, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much fun. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. And American Idol, I was I was surprised um, at how how compelling it was. You know, to yeah, watch. Yeah, me too. And you know, even uh, you know the the standard snotty Englishman, I kind of liked the after all. <laughs> well, if he if he wasn't right so much of the time, it would be easier to brush him off. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Really good. Awesome. Well, this has been fun. Yeah, this has been great. This has been wonderful for me, too. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Have bye a good bye. one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is supported by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.